0: Hello ASQ bloggers, my name is Winnie Jiang. I'm a doctoral student at the Yale School of Management and part of the organizing committee for the ASQ blog. This is the December issue of our ASQ podcast series in 2017. Today I'm interviewing Tristan Botello and Mabel Abraham about their recent ASQ article, Pursuing Quality, How Search Cause and Uncertainty Magnify Gender-Based Double Standards in a Multi-Stage Evaluation Process. Tristan and Mabel, thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe we could get started by having you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your research focuses.
1: Well, hi, and uh, thanks for having having us. Uh, My name is Tristan Botello, and I'm a first-year faculty member here at Yale SOM. And my research really centers on trying to answer interesting questions, trying to look out into the real world, see where there's a puzzle, and trying to, you know, inserting my own expertise and knowledge and trying to figure out uh, what's going on. And currently, I'm doing most of my work in either digital platforms and entrepreneurship, looking at questions around social evaluation, like this paper that we're going to be talking about today, careers, strategy, and innovation more generally.
2: Um, Hi, thank you for having us. My name is Mabel Abraham, as you mentioned, and I am on the faculty at the Columbia Business School. I'm starting my third year this year, so an assistant professor there um, after finishing my PhD at MIT. Um, So in terms of my research, to summarize, most of it has really focused on gender inequality and specifically thinking about how we can move beyond documenting the fact that inequality exists, right? Um, If I think if I were to tell you that there's inequality, men and women experience different outcomes, you wouldn't be that surprised. But the thing we know less about is what the levers are that are driving inequality, right? Like, what are the different things that we, um, that we can see that cause there to be more versus less inequality across contexts? Uh, with most of my current work really sitting um, in the space of entrepreneurship and then thinking about social networks and how resources are exchanged and how that leads to differences for men and women.
0: Mm, Fascinating, thank you very much and welcome again. So the first question I have is that we are very interested in learning more about the background story of your paper, specifically what motivated you to undertake this project. Where did the idea come from and what were some major obstacles or hurdles you had to overcome while developing this paper?
1: So I'll I'll kick this one off. and this is a great question because it's really rare to get an insight into how a project starts. We usually just yeah. read the finished product and think, oh, they must have thought about this one day, and then they wrote this paper, and that's, that's kind of it. Whereas for us um, in this project, I was working on uh, another project related to the, to this data. This, this mm-hmm. is the data I use in my dissertation, and I was actually speaking to someone who uses the platform and trying to gain insight into you know, why they joined the platform and just get a little more information about the platform in general. And it was a woman, and she had asked me, "Can you tell me how my ratings are on on the site? I was just interested, and then, like how many people are like viewing my uh, my recommendations." And I thought, "Yeah, I can I can actually do that. Let me get back to you." Mm. So I, I looked it up, and um, she was getting you know below average viewership um, uh, for her for her ideas. I thought, "Oh, that's interesting. Let's look at her performance because being that this is in the uh, financial markets." industry, I could actually tie back her recommendations to, you know, is she above average or below average? And I found that she was actually above average. So she's an above average performer lower than average uh viewership but then of course i thought you know this is probably anecdotal like i'm not sure if this actually holds and i came over to mabel one day talking about this conversation talking about just that anecdotal example and of course mabel was working on gender and uh, she said oh this is this is really really interesting we should we should talk more about it so we both um wrote this paper while we were phd students at sloan and we had this working group and we presented just the initial version of this uh, idea to people and people were just really interested in thinking about uh, this, the evaluation process and, and the gender effect given that we were able to control for so many cool, uh, cool variables. And in terms of um, obstacles and hurdles, I think this one, it, uh, this paper is special for a lot of reasons, but one of which from the obstacle perspective, it was an initial project for both of us. Okay. And both being PhD, PhD students, you know, having, you know, had limited experience with writing papers and getting them published, you face all the possible hurdles and obstacles you can imagine on a, on a project. Um, and, the, and the data were so rich, but of course, that comes with a lot of cleaning and matching, whereas and you we're talking about getting all this financial information about the firm they're recommending, about the stock market, so it was a lot of long nights just you know, getting the data set together. Um, So I think those are two of the bigger obstacles.
2: Yeah, the one thing I would add that I think is important and we sort of lose sight of sometimes is it was opportunistic in some ways in which Tristan was hearing the story and definitely knew that there was probably something interesting there, right? Like, here's a setting where we have performance information and we're still seeing this gender difference. Mm. So when he told me about it, I had an immediate reaction where this is the kind of question that is really difficult to answer in gender research. Um, One of the most common critiques, I would say, of gender research is that we compare men and women, but there's often these unobservables that we can't get at. Right, so we say that, that women are doing worse than men, and we think we're controlling for a lot of quality information, but still missing some other things, and this provided a really clean setting to get at this, where we're able to say, here's a case where all you have is a person's name, you have their performance information, there's literally no reason you should rely on the person's name more than this performance information, yet we still saw this difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think identifying these, those opportunities where you can make a contribution given a setting that really fits that question uh, was really unique in this case here.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. It seems like it comes from a specific case you run into, and also you know the theoretical expertise you already have that that makes this context makes, uh, become very suitable for the qu- questions you both are interested in answering. Exactly, that's great. And yeah.
1: uh, the other thing I, I would add is that. You know, coming out from the from Maple had a, a lot of uh, great knowledge about gender more generally, and, and but thinking about this also as an evaluation process. Mm. One thing that really got us excited was the fact that often when you read research that looks at you know either a rating system or evaluations more generally, it's this one cross section where one candidate's being evaluated. Mm. Whereas here, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about later about the paper, um, and I'm sure everyone listening has read the paper. <laughs> um, <laughs> Obviously, uh, is that the same individual is going through a multi-stage evaluation, which we rarely That's get correct. insight into. Yeah. Um, so we thought that was really exciting to be able to, like, like Mabel said, control for this objective performance where you don't expect something like gender or someone's name to elicit such a strong feeling that they're going to evaluate one person differently from someone else when you have objective information, but then also trying to see, does this differ by the stages of the evaluation? Because more generally no one ever evaluates in this like, Singular, you know, stage. We think about evaluations uh, crossing stages more generally.
0: That's right. Um, thank you. And my second question is that in this paper, you focus primarily on the effect of recommender's gender, finding that the female recommenders had a disadvantage in receiving attention from the evaluators, especially when search costs and uncertainty were higher. Have you considered the effect of the evaluator's gender? How do you think the female evaluators would react differently from male evaluators to the recommendations made by female versus male recommenders? So that's a really
2: interesting question, and um, I think an astute observation of the paper, because we definitely thought about that, right? Um, When we think about social sciences, sociology, one of the most central tenets is that people tend to fall into the trapping, for lack of a better word, um, of homophily, right? Mm -hmm. We're attracted to people who are like us. Uh, So I think one interpretation of what you're describing is that we can imagine a world in which the men on the platform were biased against the women, but maybe the women were not. Mm -hmm. Or maybe vice versa, right? We've heard some arguments about queen bee-type syndrome, uh, where maybe the women would actually be more biased. Um, so we definitely thought about this. At the time that we were doing the study, we didn't have data that allowed us to look at whether the bias varied by the gender of the evaluator. Mm-hmm. So if you remember in the paper, the main effect of gender penalty was happening at the attention stage. So that's whether or not someone clicked on a recommendation. So at that stage, we didn't have data on who was doing the clicking. Um, subsequently, Tristan ended up getting some data that let us look at a subset of that um, and get some clarity as to whether or not it was going on, but we weren't able to do it in this study.
1: Um. And the one thing I'll add about that, because uh, as we talked about before this started, uh, one of the main audiences for these podcaster students is, you know, when, when, I, when I got these data, it's from an online platform, very entrepreneurial type firm, um, who's really interested in answering any question they can with their data. So I thought, of course, they're collecting this clickstream data. So they have to know this. And at the time, they actually didn't collect it at all. And when I said it, they were almost kind of like, why do you need that? And when I told them, they're like, oh, wow, I can't believe we haven't collected this yet. So I pushed them and pushed them and pushed them, but it took a long time where this study was uh, was completed before I actually got that data. So that's why it's, a, it's only the small subset for, you know, the very end um of the time frame, but you know that's one thing that I would you know if we're gonna be giving some uh, some armchair advice to, to, to students especially is that when you're talking to these firms and you think that there's the data that's very valuable it just be persistent because just because they're not collecting it doesn't shed some kind of doubt on the need for it to be collected I just find that a lot of firms are either collecting the bare minimum because they think you know it's hard to collect a lot of data or they're collecting almost too much and they don't know where it is so you really have to push uh deeply but you know to to get back on track what we're trying to do now in, in a subsequent project is actually understand how the characteristics of both sides, let's call this a dyad, is affecting uh, evaluative type processes where we're using um, entrepreneurship data uh, coming from a, a network of entrepreneurs who exchange resources. And we're actually looking at both a more social network where people are getting to know one another as well as a resource exchange network and trying to understand how characteristics of both the giver and receiver are actually affecting how these networks play out, the resources that they get. Because we do agree with you, it's really, really important to try to understand um, and build our knowledge base from both the um, the, uh, the evaluator side and the evaluatee side of these equations. So while we couldn't do it fully uh, in this paper, I think it's an important question going forward.
0: Great, thank you very much. Uh, so you suggested in the paper that the more experienced evaluators in the study setting are likely to rely less on gender in their evaluation process. However, given that investment management is a highly male-dominated field. Individuals might become socially molded and develop stronger gender bias as their experience in this industry increases. Have you considered looking at the behaviors of evaluators with different levels of experience? How do you think their experience will influence this process?
1: Yeah, no, that's, again, it's a great question and another example of your very close read of the, of the paper. So first, to be clear, When we use the term experience evaluator, really we're talking about an evaluator who has intimate knowledge of what's being evaluated, where they're best able or very able to discern quality. And we use that to contrast previous research, especially the lab-based work, which uses an evaluator, but not necessarily one who has any experience with the thing that they're evaluating. So we think it's really important when we move theories, especially from the lab to the field, to understand how uh, characteristics about the field should affect our predictions. And what we're trying to say there is that when you're experienced in terms of, you know, this is your day-to-day job. These investment professionals, when they're not picking stocks, they're evaluating other people's stock recommendations. So we think that is a really important uh, feature of the setting that we have to theorize about. Because when we, like I said, when we're trying to bring uh, the theory from the lab to the field, that's one thing that we saw as a disconnect where this is the advantage of using a more competitive competitive context. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that data is coming from a digital platform and why that's important is because if we think about who is going to be these uh, individuals who are more as you say uh, socially molded I think it's going to be those who've been in the industry for the longest period of time yeah. so being a digital platform I would assume that it's either going to be very representative of the industry or if it's going to be skewed in any way it's gonna be skewed towards younger investment professionals who are less likely to have this, uh, so be, be part of this like social mold. So it's not going to be your 25 year veterans, they're not gonna be oversampled. If anything, they'll be undersampled. Mm. So I still think we'd find a very similar effect. Mm. At the time, uh, the platform was not uh, collecting experience in terms of how many years you've been in the platform, uh, in the industry. So we weren't able to you know, discern these differences. But I do think that, and it's a question I think we've gotten from students and, and from others, actually Mabel, I'll, uh, I'll let her uh, tell this part. I think you are telling me the other day about um, you know a student saying about like uh, you know my generation of an, uh, an evaluator versus uh, you Yeah, yeah. So
2: I was talking <laughs> to one of my MBA students um, who's going to be doing an independent study with me and he was really interested in this paper and the idea that we are seeing bias and evaluations among these people who we call I think which was basically summarizing as experts right mm-hmm. they're expert evaluators mm-hmm. in this way um, and he was like well do you think this still matters among like our generation like, the people who are in mm-hmm. like their late 20s to mid to late 30s Um, And I do think there's something there, right? I absolutely think that if we were looking at a pool of people who are mostly if an older generation I won't put an age number on there but like if an older generation where they really were subjected to bias being the norm mm. we would expect it to be even stronger so I think if I had to sort of go out on a limb a little bit right. we'd see a stronger effect there um, we don't have that information here as Tristan mentioned but I just want to say one other thing about who these people are and what our predictions were going in um, so if we think about these individuals as being experts where they're like Tristan mentioned they're basically doing this for a living day in and day out evaluating these perform the performances of these stock recommendations we would basically expect there to be less of a bias and the reason for that is when you're presented with information if you're a novice if you imagine like a PhD student a, um, an undergraduate student M Turker, where a lot of these lab based studies were done if they're evaluating quality they might not actually have the toolkit that they need to evaluate whether or not one thing is better than another mm-hmm. so when you don't have the right toolkit you can't disseminate that performance information you would expect the bias to be stronger because you fall back on the thing you do know You think, well, women are not usually in finance, so I'm going to prefer the man since I can't really make sense of this other information. So in this way, I think the fact we're looking at experts made us feel like it would be less likely we'd see a bias. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is we're in a market setting, right? So this isn't in a lab. People are actually incentivized to find the best performing recommendation. Mm -hmm. When we did some of these interviews, I remember one person specifically saying, like, I just want the one that's going to make me money. I don't care about anything else. Like Why would I care about anything else? So given these two factors, right the fact that they're experts and they're in a market setting, we thought that this actually represented a lower bound for when we'd see bias, mm-hmm. um, especially in a male-taped field. Right, So we're in a male-taped field, but we really expected it to be um, a lower bound.
1: Right. And then, and then the other thing uh, I'll add is that when we think about experience and expert evaluators, there's a lot of dimensions where someone can have experience and be an expert, right. where there are, there are some industries where you're tagged as being a judge or a critic, and then there's the more amateur evaluator that, you know, might have a lot of experience evaluating. But we, we could expect that there's uh, an important interaction, not only about uh, knowing the product, good or service being evaluated, but also kind of being told, like, you're going to judge this process versus you're not going to judge. So I think that you know, this question is important because a lot of work we have on social evaluation and especially as these rating systems are moving more and more online, we're going to start wondering about these different dynamics, about you know, the evaluators' experience evaluating versus are they a professional evaluator versus not and how do they interact.
0: Great. Thank you very much for the detailed explanations. Okay, so the question four I have is that in this paper, you suggested that search cost and uncertainty are two conditions that would magnify gender-based double standards in the evaluation process. How did you come to focus on these two conditions as you developed this study? Did you have them in mind before analyzing the empirical setting, or were they identified as the analysis evolved?
2: So. I love this question, I have to say, and I love this question because I think it's something we've talked so much about um, because as grad students, we have very specific perceptions of what we think it means to make a theoretical contribution. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing I would comment on is even making it open in a possibility that it could emerge from the analyses is something that should be said out loud. Very often we're doing studies and we have a main sort of main theoretical contribution in mind and we run some analysis and we're like, oh, the effects are actually heterogeneous in this way and I wouldn't have expected that. And that's okay, right? I think just making that okay is important and an important thing to say. In this case, the idea to look at these two conditions actually came from the theory. So it's not the case that we just found it in the results. They came from the theory and they came from the theory, the theory in a very specific way. So we started with this notion of double standards. We're thinking about like double standards are- is a term that's thrown around in popular press. And it's also a, a term in the, in the theoretical literature that tells us that men and women might be held to different standards, specifically women being held to a higher standard where they have to outperform men to get the same assessment, right? So that's the common idea. So what double standards theory would predict is as performance information is introduced, we no longer need to rely on gender. Right? So once we see that Tristan and I perform similarly on a task, why would you favor Tristan over me? You would basically think we're equal performers, so we're equally worthy of getting the same, the same rating. But what that research was actually finding was that sometimes gender still mattered. And as we were looking at that research, we started thinking, well, what exactly is double standards theory based on? And it's based on this notion that you don't need to rely on status signals when you have performance information, and that it has to do with uncertainty. Once you have this performance information, you have less uncertainty, therefore you don't need to fall back on signals such as gender to make sense of whether or not a person will be a strong or a better performer than someone else. So.
1: Yes, so, and then you know, what, what I would add to that is when, when we think about you know, all the theories we have out there about these processes, that's very similar to what status theory more generally would tell us. Where what this performance information is doing is, uh, is, is reducing uncertainty. And where we really want... Um, status to matter is when you don't understand quality. Because if you had a perfect barometer of quality, then it's unclear what the status signal is doing in a market context. So we saw that as an opportunity to not only speak to double standards theory, but almost start this bridging process among very similar types of theories you know, double standards theory, as Mabel mentioned, status theory, which has, you know, some baseline predictions about the role of uncertainty, and then also like status characteristic theory, which kind of bridges the idea of uh, women being uh, being seen as more or less competent in a market setting. So we, we went in with all this knowledge about, you know, status theory and how it applies to evaluations. And we saw this as a perfect setting to not, you know, create our own theory, but start bridging some of the existing theories to tell a more cohesive story about the role of status and evaluative outcomes.
2: So I just want to add one more thing, I think that's really important, um, and it's important especially since we're tar- this is targeted towards students, right, to recognize how that is a contribution. I think going back to the first part where not all theoretical contributions are these grandiose, grand theories that we sort of think up and come up with, but also that not all theor- theoretical contributions really stem from developing new theory. Um, I think I remember, at least as a PhD student, often thinking that the only way you can make a theoretical contribution is if you propose a new theory. The reality is there are thousands of theories already, so finding opportunities to bridge like Tristan just described is really important and in some ways is more valuable. It's organizing the literature and it's helping us think about how does what we know over here actually speak to a point of, on something we're working on. Um, so to just take, the, uh, take it a step farther in terms of the conditions, when we recognize this, this link between double standards theory and this role of uncertainty, we started thinking what other factors could drive there being more versus less uncertainty. So the most related one had to do with the amount of information that was being presented. Right? So we started thinking, is having performance information a binary variable? Is it really the case that either you don't have it or you do? Or is it the case that you could have varying amounts of, um, of actual quality or performance information? And that led us to look at the different stages of the evaluation. Right? So on the fr- in the first stage, you see a performance metric. This recommendation has performed X to date. But then once you go to the next stage, you click on the recommendation, you had a lot of information. You had the full model that was supporting that recommendation, all the context and detail that was written up, and we thought, that's actually even more information. And unsurprisingly, we ended up finding that there is no gender difference at that stage where there's a lot of information. Um, The other factors, that would basically be the uncertainty piece. Um, The other factor that's related to uncertainty is search costs. There's more uncertainty. It's more challenging in some ways to make sense of information when you have 100 candidates to look through. It's not so difficult if you have two, you can actually look at them really closely. Um, so thinking about that sort of tenant in the literature about uncertainty led us to think of the two conditions we thought were most prominent and to make predictions based on that.
1: And then what I'd add to that is, you know, while as Mabel said, these predictions didn't come from the data, what they did come from though, is our own experience before entering academia. You know, I had worked in finance um, and there's one position where we hired, I think we got something like 700 applications for, for one slot. And then we start thinking about what do you do in cases like that? Did I sit there and spend 20 minutes per application and basically my whole like six months? No, you start using certain uh, signals to start, start winnowing down. So maybe it's where someone went to school, maybe it's where they had their internship. And these are, you know, as we know from status literature related to quality, but then you start wondering, are we even subconsciously using other things such as gender? Because we do have, um, unfortunately, these societal norms of thinking that, you know, women don't work in finance. In my office that I was talking about, we had uh, three women, two of which were um, administrative assistants. Everyone else was a man besides this one associate. So I think we started using these things, if we know it or not, and getting a chance to actually take some of the things we saw uh, in the hiring process, even these multi-stage evaluation process and bringing it to where we had really good data and being able to control for performance. And then bridges there, we thought was going to be a really nice uh, contribution.
0: Great. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. So the next question is that we really like the various strategies you took to conduct the robustness checks and rule out the alternative explanations. What advice would you give to students who are struggling to come up with techniques to address alternative explanations?
1: I think we all fall into what I would call almost a trap, where robustness checks are simultaneously extremely important and way too overemphasized where I almost uh, kind of like, chuckle to myself sometimes when you're at a talk, you read a paper and it's robust to check 17. Mm-hmm. And then you almost don't even see the connection between what they're ruling out and what they're actually trying to propose in, the, in their main theory. And the one piece of advice that I, I, I got the whole time I, I was doing my PhD was papers are remembered for one thing. Yeah. So when you start, you know, ruling out an alternative explanation to hypothesis like, uh, you know, 7D, I think you're losing track of what these are all about. But like I said, they're, they're really, really important because the data generated by individuals and firms are messy. And that's what makes them so intriguing is that we're trying to answer important questions for... It could be an individual, it could be for an organization, it could be for society. And if you're getting data from these sources, they're not going to come in a very clean CSV file that you can just like pop into R data Stata and run some regressions. Oh, mine so.
2: usually do. Oh,
1: see. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I uh, picked Mabel as a co-author. <laughs> but I think what actually uh, what actually happens is that the robustness check process, like the life of the paper, goes through various ups and downs in various stages. So I think that when you think of a question, you know, how does... You know, uh, X affect Y, or or uh, or something of that nature. You automatically start thinking of like simple alternatives, and I think those are really important to rule out. But if I, you know, when I'm working on a paper, I kind of stop there, and then I start talking to people. And I think, especially as students, we have this. You know, I've I've heard dozens of excuses from you know very like, relevant to, to, uh, to very crazy about why people don't talk about their research. You know, For example, people uh, on the more, uh, what I agree with, especially students, they don't think that the research seems ready and they want to make a really good impression. I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. On the other side, the little more crazier is that they don't want to get scooped, which means they don't want someone else to steal their idea. I've never you know, had that happen to me and I, I talk pretty freely about my, my research, but I think that as students especially, we need to think about how can we get a project moving forward and that comes from talking to people start with your friends then move to your colleagues in your department and then move maybe to seminars uh or to conferences more generally and then what happens with these papers is that people start asking you questions and then you can almost start triangulating on what are the more popular alternative explanations and they can also come from reviewers too so there's a lot of ways where robustness checks come so i remember for this paper but uh, one of the first things that uh, that i was thinking about when when thinking through the analysis was men have more female names. So that was like a very like early on robustness check. And it's, you can't randomly assign gender, but this is a really cool robustness check. But then we did another robust check about like the census because of the algorithm we're using for the naming. That came much later. A reviewer suggested the robustness check about looking at industries with fewer ideas to see if it's a selection bias. And then, you know, obviously uh, Mabel brought some ideas and then we talked about those and we talked about some of my ideas, some of them made the paper, some of them are sitting sitting in a do file somewhere. So I think they come from a lot of places and I see research uh, or what I hope about this career doing research is that it's a community. So science is a community. So you know the one piece of advice I would give on, on this front is talk to other people. You're never gonna come up with all the robustness checks just sitting in your office, and half of the ones you come up with, you'll never see again.
2: I wanna say one thing sort of backtracking a little bit, like to the Tristan's first point about how the goal is not to have a laundry list of robustness checks, right? It is not the case that your paper is better because you run 25 robustness checks. Mm. Um, and I think one way I often think about this is really being careful about finding research settings that answer the question well. You alluded to this, I think, in our first question, we are talking about how it was well-suited for this, The this uh, data set was well-suited for the specific question we had in mind. I think that's so important and really underemphasized, because at the end of the day, if you pick a, a data setting or setting, um, research setting or data that is well-matched to the question you're trying to answer, the likelihood that you have to do fewer of these, like, statistical Olympics to try to rule out all these different things is much higher. You're much more likely to be able to make the argument you're trying to make with some well-designed robustness checks. You always need them, but not having to do these far-fetched crazy things. Right. Um, and the one added thing to take it a step farther is even when you do the robustness checks and you still have some alternative that you can't rule out, that's not the death wish for your paper. It doesn't mean that your paper is not going to be successful or that you can't make a claim. I think what it really means is that you have to be careful about what the claim is that you're making. You want to be able to take that alternative that you just can't rule out and include it in your explanation. It doesn't become a detriment. It becomes that you can't maybe claim the very specific thing you wanted it to claim, but you can claim something a bit broader that allows for your explanation that maybe you set out to find or you thought was going to be there and this alternative that could very well be going on, but you can't rule out. So I think it becomes really important to not overclaim, And if you're careful about the claims that you're making, it becomes less of a detriment when you can't perfectly rule out every single thing you're trying to rule out.
1: Yeah, and then all all I would add to that is I'm often wary of papers that, um, at least in in their writing or in the presentation, um, it's made to seem that this is you know, the end all be all, mm-hmm. that we now understand this question and I've thought of every alternative, my data are perfect, um, so, you know, QED, take it, take it as, as is. Where again, you know, this is kind of how I approach research and I know uh, Mabel does as well, is that the goal is really to push knowledge forward. This is not going to be the last paper on the effect of gender in evaluation processes, right? This is um, one setting where we think we have really good data on objective quality and trying to understand what uh, can bias the evaluation process above and beyond that. But at the end of the day, we're really trying to triangulate. So we hope that this is one paper in what um, is going to be, you know, several or dozen subsequent papers that are really just trying to isolate when there's effect, how there's an effect, where you know, you know, where where does where does it come out uh, in the data, in, in organizations and markets more generally. So um, while we're very proud of the paper, we know that there are limitations, but we're proud of those limitations too because it means we're not done yet and we're we're and we're still trying to figure out when we can you know, redress gender inequality in this paper, but it could be racial inequality in another paper, or it could be something completely different depending on what your research question is. But I think it's very important not to think, oh, I've written the paper, I have all these robustness checks, oh, there's nothing else to, to be done here. Uh, I think that's the wrong way to approach a question.
2: It's just being honest, right? It's sort of moving past the mindset of perfection and just being honest about what you can do, being transparent about what you can do, and allowing yourself room for there being space for other work to contribute as well. I think that's just really what it comes down to. That's
0: great. Thank you very much. The last question I have is about your teamwork and collaboration on the paper. How did your partnership for this paper develop, and how did you work as a team throughout the process of developing it? As doctoral students, much of our research is either independent or conducted with our advisors. Is there any particular advice you would give to students on partnering with colleagues who are at similar points in their careers?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, collaboration in this field is very, very, very important. And um, I think the, the key reason is that it's a roller coaster process where you have an idea on a random Monday night, but then you don't see the paper in print for two or three years. And there's a lot of things that happen in between those moments. So having someone or, or, or more than one person there with you just makes the process better.
2: More fun as well. Yeah, more else. fun,
1: yeah. And I think if you look at uh, people in the field, uh, and you look at their CVs, very, very few write more than a handful of solo author work in their long career. And I think it's because, again, you know, this view of science as being more of a community, it's very hard to, I think, write a very well-rounded paper without getting the opinions of others and having the, uh, an opinion of other being part of the project You know, helps that along. And as far as um, kind of this, this partnership I think one thing that made it work well is that we have very similar work styles where we like being part of every stage of the process. I know some people like to divide and conquer where I do this, you do that, and we kind of put it together. Whereas we really in all of our projects with each other and with others, we like uh, thinking about the entire process together as one whole unit and contributing where uh, we can to all the different facets of the paper. So I think, you know, having a similar work style is really important in fostering a, a productive collaboration. And, you know, and this was a lot of fun and, you know, like we alluded to earlier, we're, we're working on other projects. So I guess mm. we didn't uh, hate it that much yeah. working together. Yeah.
2: And you might be more or less surprised um, knowing that we're siblings. So Tristan is my brother and the fact that we have this much fun for me isn't surprising because we've always gotten along really well and had fun doing a lot of different things together. Depending on your own experience with siblings, you might have a very different reaction, like how can they work together? How can siblings do this?
1: Especially as for the record, being the younger brother. And we know those stereotypes about older sisters.
2: He 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 just wants to make it known that he's younger. That's that's (laughs) what that was. But I do think work styles are really important. I don't know that I could actually um, work successfully in a model where somebody does the front end, someone does the back end, for example. Um, I just don't see how that leads to a synergistic product for me. I know people who've done it extremely well and have great papers that I admire and respect and have taken that approach, but I think that finding someone who has a similar work style as you is probably one of the most important elements. Um, the other two things I would add have to do with respect and liking, right? I don't think I could work with anyone who I don't respect as a person, but even beyond that, just respect their work style, their work ethic. Um, their approach to science, right, what their sort of core ideas and thoughts are on doing scientific research, um, their philosophies, you just have to sort of know that you trust that person. So the pieces that they are working on, the pieces that they might be driving at any given moment in time, you're going to support, buy into, not second guess and feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I would say for me, maybe even more important than that is liking the person. Tristan alluded to the fact that it's a roller coaster. Um, I think he gave the stat that two to three years later, we all know that sometimes it's even longer than that. Um, And what that involves is everything from working with the data and doing the analysis, reading the literature, dealing with God only knows how many rounds of revisions you might have to face. So with all of those different elements in place, if you're dealing with a person that you're going to butt heads with, and in, in an unproductive way, right, where you're just kind of contentious, that could be really miserable. You're better off working alone at that point. But if instead you're w- working with a person that you really like and enjoy spending time with um, and sort of look forward to having those conversations with, it's much more enjoyable. You actually feel like that long process is made less painful for having that person there. So I would encourage students to not be afraid of working with peers. Um, either same level peers or slightly more senior peers, but to be careful in choosing those partnerships. I think that partnerships can go really badly. And once you're sort of scarred from having a bad relationship, I have heard from other people that you sort of are very resistant to then engaging in a new relationship. And since this work is so collaborative, since it is so much about inputs from multiple audience members, both collaborators on the project and a broader sort of set of people you present to, you don't want to get tarnished in that way you don't want to have this perception that you shouldn't work with other people so just being careful early on in who you select i think can lead to future success
1: and, and then some other things i'd add to that i think the relationship is important i know on this project and i've carried it on to other products as, as well is that you just have to have this open line of communication you know, where where you often hear the stories about me and my co-author meet, you know, at very set times and very set days. And it's very, almost like too businesslike. Whereas I, you know, will just text a co-author a question or just call them on a Saturday or on a Monday night. doesn't really matter. And they'll do the same because I think it's really important to have just a fluid relationship. Of course, you need boundaries. You need, obviously, the set meetings sometimes, but not treating it so much as, a, uh, a fixed schedule and just kind of going with the flow a little bit allows, I think, for a, uh, a better collaboration. And then the other piece I, I would add to um, you know, partnering with colleagues at, at similar points in your career. I'm only one data point, so it's tough. So I've, I've gone the more independent route. I've never written a paper with an advisor, so I can't tell you what the differences are. And one of the reasons why I think I, I've gone this route is that if you have a question that you find very interesting and you have a rich set of data, why not go at it? with someone at your stage, because I think mm-hmm. that the end product will feel just you know, immensely rewarding. Uh, not that working with your advisor isn't that, but I think there's something special about doing every part of the project by yourself or with someone at your stage where you're learning together, whereas we all know, or I can imagine how the advisor relationship goes, that when you hit a roadblock, they're going to help you through that roadblock, which is, it's needed in any project, you should always be able to go to an advisor uh, or, or a mentor, but going through the research uh, project with the only other person having a, a very vested interest is someone at your same stage, I think it's just a, a rewarding, uh, yet tumultuous uh, uh, process. On. There's a lot of variance in emotions. I um, what, can
2: I one thing to that, then sure. think about what you just said. Um, I think it's also important because there's some sort of impression management that happens when you're working with an advisor, right? I think to the point Tristan was making earlier was sometimes close to the vest about certain things. We're certainly close to the best about our weaknesses, our challenges. We don't want to always share that right away. And I think you're much quicker to share with a peer, especially maybe your brother. But if I get stuck somewhere, I have no issue just saying, I can't figure out why this model isn't converging, like take a look at my code. I'm not sure that you're as quick to do that if you're working with a really senior mentor. So it forces you to face the challenge, and it also gets you to a resolution sometimes in a more effective way because you're being transparent right from the beginning and not trying to sort of show that you can figure it out on your own. There's very little of that that happens with peer collaborations than my experience.
1: Yeah, and, and la- I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the last things I'll add about this is that when you think about peer collaborations, you have, and this probably goes back to what Mabel we just said about pressure management, you have a more open dialogue about the project itself. Whereas I knew, I know I felt pressure when an advisor or senior faculty member would say, I'm working on this project, do you wanna work on it too? You almost think to yourself, oh, it has to be a good project. Cause they're obviously, you know, senior and they know what they're talking about. Whereas when you talk to a peer, you're more likely to push back and really try to focus on what the, the questions are going to be and the research is going to be. And that goes, I guess, to my last piece of advice is, feel free to say no to things. I think as students, we feel this need to say yes to everything and what that ends up happening is now you have like an impressive pipeline. We all see you know CVs with you know nine working papers and then you know, like at various stages, but I think it's much more important to have a core set of projects you're working on that you know everything about that you know are going to reach the finish line and not a lot of projects that you're kind of only like one-fifth involved in and, and not really sure where it's going to go. So I think focusing on a core set of projects and working with peers, to Maple's point again, I think that it is really helpful in um, just understanding what we're doing for research. Uh, you know, this is the career we've all chosen, so I think the best way to learn about all of it is to face every challenge uh, head-on and that I think that was easier, at least for me, doing it with someone at my uh, same career stage.
0: This is wonderful. Thank you so much, Tristan and Mabel. So thank you again for joining us today and sharing your thoughts and experiences about your paper. I found it truly fascinating, and I expect that many of our readers and listeners will find it similarly intriguing and helpful. Thanks again for listening. Please check out the next installment of our ASQ podcast series, and, uh, which will be coming out soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you for <coughs> Appreciate us. it.